Since the last time I was here, two weeks ago, I've preached or taught in Spanish ten times. So there is every possibility that I'll get wound up and give you several paragraphs in Spanish. Okay, that happened once before. I confused a wonderful church in Texas by getting excited and giving them about a minute and a half, apparently, of what I thought was reasonably good biblical teaching in a language very few of them spoke. Uh, my wife had to point that out to me after the service. It's been an unusual weekend. Um, with all the kids gone, this is my least favorite weekend of the year. Um, it's amazing to watch. We had about 300 people in the parking lot between students and parents. It's amazing to watch the tears glisten in the parents' eyes as the kids get on the bus. Uh, the kids are, I promise you, they're not giving us a second thought as they're headed to the greatest spot on earth, but do keep them in prayer. And now I have an unusual responsibility because I want to share with you again something I did two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we opened up Psalm 78. You can look there again, please. And I tried to share with you the heart of this great psalm of wisdom and instruction for Israel. But what made it so unusual was, in spite of the fact that we had three services, uh, we had a technical difficulty and not one single recording survived, not audio or video. And at the same time, because of needs in our church family, it seemed to stri strike a chord and people wanted to share it. People had specific questions. I welcomed questions about these topics and received more questions than I ever have in my life. And I'm heeding counsel to recap what I taught you two weeks ago, and I pray that won't be tedious but rather encouraging, and add a vital piece of Scripture from Deuteronomy that there simply wasn't time to two weeks ago. And then at the end, the sermon will be shorter, I'd like to address specifically some of the questions you've asked me. I already know I can't be as specific as I would like, but I will answer privately an email, hopefully give a more complete answer to all of you who wrote me. If from this sermon or from something you're simply going through that God is bringing your family through, if you'd like to talk about it, send me an email. To, my email's in the bulletin, or you can simply write parenting at crosspointhb.org, and in confidence, we can talk about the journey you're on with your kids. Some are welcoming newborns into their home and scared to death. Others are dealing with kids in their 20s, and they're also, can you guess, scared to death as well. That fear never really goes away, and yet here is the heart of biblical parenting. What Psalm 78 teaches us is this, faithful parenting is the kind that helps our kids love God more than you have. That is the goal of faithful parenting, and I haven't been clear on this enough, you are responsible before God to obey God and to love Him and do your part to help your kids love the Lord. They might not. If I'm very candid, I can introduce you to wonderful families who raised four kids, three of them love the Lord, are exemplary people in every respect, and one of them at least at this point, is disinterested, skeptical, or hostile. In God's view, those parents are successful and faithful parents because they have done what He asked them to do. George Santayana, a great philosopher from Harvard, said this, those who do not remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And Asaph, the psalmist who gave us Psalm 78, was keenly aware of that. Look at your Bible with me, Psalm 78, verse 1. He's speaking to the entire nation, and he writes, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. In other words, I'm going to give you insight and revelation about something that we did not know until God spoke to us. Verse 3, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Here's parental responsibility, helping kids love God more than their parents did. We will not hide them from their children. 
But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. That's another synonym for the nation of Israel. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Here's the purpose. That the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. One of the hazards of aging is, as you get older, you get more and more impatient with people who are younger than you are. Have any of you noticed this? I'm getting to the age where I will occasionally mutter something about these kids today. And I have a good friend, when I get curmudgeonly and crabby like that, he'll look at me and say, get off my lawn, okay, and kind of mimic what I sound like to him angry, crabby person who doesn't find any value in anyone who's much younger than he is, doesn't understand the music he listened to. I want you to look carefully at verse 8. Asaph has some harsh criticism for a generation, but who is he critical of? He's critical of the older generation. He's looking at his days and his ancestors and saying that generation was stubborn and rebellious. They were a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And the point of all of this long psalm, if you'll thumb through it, it takes three pages in my Bible. It's 72 verses long, reviewing the many sins and the great amount of foolishness, not that the kids got themselves into, but that their parents, their ancestors got into. The purpose Asaph says, of godly parenting is to get the kids, the new generation, those coming up behind us to set their hope in God. So, three commitments for godly parenting. This is the recap. First of all, you make sure that a deep, loving trust in God is your greatest legacy. At the heart of every loving parent is this simple idea, I want my kids to have it better than I did. And you don't really understand the sacrifices that your loving parents made for you until you have kids of your own and you look back and you think to yourself, I had no idea what I put my parents through. But that's what loving parents do. They step forward, they take the pressure, they take the hurt and the wounds and they make the sacrifices and they fight through their fears and they dry their own tears so that their kids will have it better than they did. But here's the cultural deception. Generally speaking, when American parents think about their kids having it better than they did, they're only thinking about finances and professional success. If I can get my kids through school, if I can get them settled in a good trade or a good career, if they could somehow in this area begin to own a home, then I'll count myself a success. And here's where you have to have a God-centered view of parenting and what God wants for your children. If you give your children every earthly blessing and give them every opportunity and they enjoy every success and even give you grandchildren and they lose sight of God and walk away from their Creator and their Savior, that will be a tragedy. Better that they be poor. Better that they be obscure and love the Lord their God with all their heart than to make financial success or professional accomplishment the greatest thing in their lives. In terms of making a legacy, a spiritual legacy, the greatest thing we can give our children, American parents generally run into two pitfalls. The first is very real and very practical, and let me try again to put you at ease. Many will say, I just don't know how to do that. I don't know how to teach my kids to love the Lord. Listen, that's real and that's practical. Unless someone has showed you specifically how to open the Bible and pray with your children and give them wise counsel so that they walk with the God who made them and loved them, nobody knows how to do that. But can I help you with a 
example from real life? They have this thing in America called AYSO. Are you familiar? American Youth Soccer Organization. Do you know how many out of shape, absolutely terrible soccer coaches are out there right now? working alongside children, never having played the game, never having really seen a soccer ball or had one in their hands until their four-year-old decided they wanted to try soccer. Now, why are dads who have never played soccer and actually don't like the game, why are they coaching their kids to play soccer? They love their kids. Now, I grew up in Mexico, as I've told you many times, and inside the Mexican heart is a soccer ball. We love football down there. And I was a terrible soccer player, but I was around really good ones. So when I went into AYSO, in one of the rare years we lived in the United States, I knew that this carpenter who's coaching our team was completely wrong about just about everything he said. <laughs> I mean, the guy literally brought a textbook to the field, and he's running us through, dill, through drills, looking at a book and trying and he's just wrong. Now, why was he out there? Because his son was on the team and he wanted that experience. What's my point? Mom, Dad, if you'll bring that same kind of intensity, of focus, of hunger, of saying, I don't know how to make a love for God. I don't know how to personally give that to my children. There's help here. That full inbox of questions that you asked me, some of them very heartbreaking, tells me that perhaps we have a culture where people suffer on their own, not being willing or able, feeling the confidence to ask for help. We're a family of faith, folks. I'm primarily responsible for my children, but I love yours dearly. And I would love it greatly if in our old age we could sit back together and look at weekends like this and marvel at what God has done, that you've never actually just you and your kid opened the Bible and prayed. You don't know much Scripture memory. You don't know how to explain much of the Bible to him, but you, like that well-meaning soccer dad, you decided to figure it out, to learn yourself, and to start helping him. You've got to work past that obstacle that you don't know how. A second pitfall for American parents, I've heard it dozens of times, is this. And it's related to the first. Parents will say, I'm just going to provide a good home, and when they're old enough, they can decide for themselves. That's deception. It may not be malicious, but it's deception, and it will do your kids great harm. Let me explain. I assure you, if you love your children, even though you don't feel like an expert and in your honest moments you feel like a complete rank amateur, I guarantee you that you've already decided all kinds of things for them and you're not waiting for them to make their minds up on. For instance, any options on brushing their teeth in your home? What about saying please and thank you? Or eating the food that is served to them? Or simply attending school? Anybody deciding on that? I'm going to let the kindergartner, you know, when he's older, he can decide what he wants to do about his education. Nobody takes that view of anything in life but our genuine, our genuine ignorance. In other words, I don't know how to do this. Perhaps I can just push that down a road a little bit and maybe something will work out. Folks, please, it is your sacred responsibility before God from the moment you're given children to give them this legacy. And that sacred task can be shared, and it should be, but it can never be delegated. You can't abdicate that task of teaching your kids to love the Lord. You can't abdicate that and leave that in anyone else's hands. Sunday school, discipleship, youth group, all the things that are part of this church's ministry. We are your partners. We are your helpers. We are prayer warriors with you, but we cannot do it because that's what God gave you to do. A second commitment is this. Tell your kids that there is truth and that God has put it in writing. I don't have time to explain to you what's been going on in our country for about 200 years now. We're now living with the final effects of an intellectual movement that has slowly chipped away at the very idea that truth exists. 
when we speak of morals and objective obligations for every human being in the country, this is what you hear. Well, that's your truth, not mine. According to who? Who gave you that authority? How do you know? That may be true in your family or your culture or your community, but it's certainly not true for ours. Increasingly, and you can just watch for this in the news, increasingly, we are unwilling or unable to say that any specific moral truth exists. And what that leaves us is where we live today. There are increasing regulations and increasing social pressure from every sort of group that advocates for their vision of what the truth is. All we're left with is more laws and regulations and more social pressure campaigns. That's the only way to maintain civilization and culture and decency if hundreds of millions of people can't agree that anything is specifically true. Asaph knew better. Look at, his, look at his written record to Israel in verse 5. Speaking of what God had done for them, it says, He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. In other words, God spoke of Himself, explained who He is, and He told us how to live. He gave us law. They weren't suggestions or principles or general guidelines. He told us what is real, what is true. And then it gets horizontal. God speaks to people, and then He turns to those same people, to the older generation, it says, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. You have to tell your kids that there's truth, and that they can open up the Bible, this miraculous book that is verifiably, historically, archaeologically verifiable and trustworthy, and they can know what is real and what is true and what is good. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in all of the Bible, and it is so because it is a long song about the Word of God itself. If you're not in the habit of opening the Bible with your children, this is a great place to start. You can take a single one of these verses and begin to discuss it. On the rare occasions, I have a 20 and a 17-year-old now, on the rare occasions when we can have breakfast together, I love to grab a single piece of Scripture, read it or give it to them from memory, and explain it to them, and then ask them one or two questions to see if they understand and what difference they think it might make in real life. Here's one example. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, Psalms are poetry. This is a two-line poem. Your word, God, what you have put in writing, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What does that mean? Simply this, you can't walk in today's darkness in yesterday's light. One of the consistent things you can tell your children is every time you open your Bible, you're not opening a textbook, you're actually hearing and reading the very words and voice of God, and what He wants to do over the course of your life is speak to you to give you light for the path. Psalm 119, verse 45 is a favorite. Read it with me. The psalmist wrote, I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. This is as countercultural as it gets. See, the cultural caricature is if you confine yourself to Scripture, if you believe that God has spoken authoritatively and means to be understood and obeyed, if you do that, you're going to put yourself in some kind of straitjacket and never have a day of joy or freedom in your whole life. By that caricature, God is some sort of cosmic killjoy that wants to make sure that this 16-year-old kid never smiles again. The psalmist knew better. I will walk in freedom. Why? Because I've devoted myself to your commandments. If there is a God who made everything that exists, including the people who are reading His Word, he knows reality. He created it. He defined it. He knows what joy and heat and peace and happiness actually are. He knows what human heartbreak and disappointment and anger and all of those negative things do to us. 
What is the way out? How do we walk in freedom? We devote ourselves to what God has commanded, and we discover that the more we do, the more freely we walk through life. The flip side of this verse, when people do not obey what God has commanded, I've seen particularly in two places in ministry. Prison and those who are addicted to some substance. However a man or a woman ends up in prison and is deprived of their physical freedom or has fallen down, has fallen down into a trap that leads them to be physically dependent and emotionally dependent upon a substance for life, those decisions initially were a quest for freedom, that they would have fun on their terms, they would hang out and do what they wanted, they would enjoy life as they defined it, and they discover in whatever put them addicted or imprisoned or both, that walking away from what God has commanded is actually very restrictive until you come to a point where you have no freedom whatsoever. The best thing you can give to Scripture, you can give to your kids from Scripture, is actually a relationship with Jesus. Look what He said in John 5.39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let me drop you into the context. Jesus is speaking to people who oppose Him. They have mastered the Bible as a textbook and missed its point. They've missed the person of Jesus. So Jesus said to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, it is the Scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. My kids are old enough and now I'm old enough that I've come to the sad realization that I won't always be able to walk with them through life and take care of them and love them and try to protect them and set them up for success as I've tried to do for these 20 years of parenting. I can do something for them that is much better than my presence. I can give them a living, actual relationship with the God who made them and the Savior that died for them so that they walk safely, securely, wisely beside Jesus for the rest of their life. If they will master Scripture as a discipline of hearing the voice of God and with all, all our faults and all of our fears doing our best to obey Him and entrust our lives to the One who made us, we will actually have life because we've met the Lord. And parents, that's your responsibility. Look at what it says in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. More on that in a moment but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There is a God who made them and He sent His Son to save them, and they can know Him, and they can live under His tutelage, under His care and guidance, and our task is twofold, not to anger them. Parents, please understand this. Nobody has ever been angered into following Jesus. You can't do it. If you train them up, if you raise them up instead in His discipline and instruction, you will do them the greatest favor of their lives. And what that takes simply is consistency. Everything we've read, everything Jesus said, the Psalms that I've shown you flow from this central idea in the life of Israel, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. This is the heart of Israel's faith. This is where God explicitly spelled out for them who He was and what they were to do about it in their daily lives. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is so basic and so fundamental to your worldview if you're following Jesus that you take that for granted. That was countercultural for Israel. They lived surrounded by nations who believed in spirits of the rivers, of the rocks, of the trees. Some gods were in charge of valleys. Others were in charge of mountains. There were many idols and many sacrifices that had to be taken into account to please this amazing buffet of gods. God spoke to Israel and said, I am one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And because He made the earth and everyone in it, here's what we do. Here's the horizontal part, person to person. 
and person to Him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Mom and dad, that's your first responsibility. Independent of what your children eventually do in their young age or in their adult years, your greatest responsibility, and Jesus repeated this when He was on earth, is to love the Lord your God supremely with everything He gave you, with everything you have. Does anybody do that perfectly? Not for a single day in their life. But the genuine effort to know who God is and to love Him in a demonstrable, real, practical way lived out in front of your kids for life makes an eternal difference. And that's where the next part of this passage tells us and gives the responsibility to parents. Look, these words that I command you, I think we skipped a little bit. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, you first mom, you first dad. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Let me ask you, does that sound kind of daily to you? I mean, what's left? This is to be a continual topic of conversation. When you're home, when you're walking, before you go to bed, when you get up in the morning, you shall continually be talking about who God is and our responsibility to love Him. If you catch nothing else I say today, please understand this. What God is telling us through all these Scriptures is simply this. The family is God's delivery system, and consistency is the key. We live in a culture that is so fractured, that we're now more than any time in our national history seeing a generation of children who are largely raising themselves and being bounced between homes. We have more kids in foster care, more kids in need of adoption than ever we've ever had before. But God's original plan is for those parents to whom He entrusted children to be His delivery system. The church, the body of Christ, we are your partners with you, but this is your sacred responsibility. It can be your joy. It can be the thing that makes you happiest on earth, but it is consistency that makes all the difference. That's why Deuteronomy is so repetitive. You're going to love the Lord your God with everything you have and the things that you know You're going to put that in front of your children when you're home, when you're on the road, when you go to bed at night, and when you rise. You will look continually for teachable moments to tell them who God actually is, and consistency is the magic. Years ago, in another parenting opportunity of teaching, somebody who, because of the way they were raised, somehow knew something about raising dogs to fight told me something very interesting. She said, all you have to do to make a dog vicious and dangerous is be inconsistent, be unpredictable. You feed him one day, kind to him one day, you starve him and beat him for the next two. And you just keep that going. You keep him unpredictable. You keep his life unpredictable and you make him afraid and you'll make him dangerous. He'll be vicious. See, if you're brutal all the time, you'll break the dog's spirit. He'll be afraid of everything. If you're nice all the time, he'll be a sweetheart. He won't hurt anybody. If you want to make a dog dangerous and mean, just treat him inconsistently. And that struck me because I thought, you know, the same is true of people. Your gift of consistency, of telling your children that you know the Lord and His Word and His person and His will comes first in your life. And with all the mistakes right in front of you, with all of the mistakes that they already know, you are doing your best to love them, and you do that day after day after day. Those five-minute conversations, those drives on the way home from the movie where malicious things that will steal your child's innocence were, were sort of pushed into the movie, and you sat there shocked, wishing you had never been there. It's a wonderful opportunity on the way home to say, hey, bud, what what'd you think about that one scene? And here's what I got for years. I don't know. Cool, I guess. Oh, boy. God have anything to say about that? 
and you probe. And if they know a little bit and they share it, you ask another question and another question. Don't show frustration. Don't show anger. You're coaching. You're teaching. You're waiting with patience for them to understand. And you can't do it in a day. Let me caution you about something. Some parents, after being dealt with by God about their need to be parents, will go home and try to do a lifetime of discipline and a lifetime of correction and a lifetime of coaching over the next two days. And you'll completely blow your kids out of the water. They'll think, I never want to take my parents back to church. They go crazy. (laughs) That's why Deuteronomy is explained the way it is. The word that God has spoken, it's on your heart first. You're getting up in the morning saying, God, this breath of life is a gift to me. That little kid in the next room who's going to hate getting up, I love him. And he's going to go out into a hostile world, so give me wisdom and courage and give me three minutes this morning to put something from you in front of him that we can discuss on the way to school. I so miss having to drive my kids everywhere. I never thought I would say that. But for a while, we had a 15 or 20-minute drive to school, and it was the richest time. We didn't always do it, but those five minutes conversations where I shut up for long enough to listen and to ask a single question and to treat them as intelligent, wise people who knew God themselves that could be invited to understand what God had said about a specific situation, those were wonderful. You just have to be consistent. Finally, show them the strength of God's faithfulness and the foolishness of ignoring Him. If you look in Psalm 78, you notice it's so long because it's a long catalog of Israel's foolishness before a faithful God. Look at verse 9. The Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to His law. 17. Yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. Verse 40. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. And in spite of all that, the last verse says that God gave Israel King David, a man after God's own heart, with integrity in his heart and skill in his hands to guide them. What's Asaph doing? He's telling them the family history and showing them how good and faithful God is and how stupid and foolish they were and how it cost them every time they disregarded what God had to say. Many parents are not willing to confront their children and warn them against things and forbid them things because they think, well, I did that when I was young. And I need to let them get out there and experience the world And if I put down these hard rules, I'll be a hypocrite. No, you'll love them. Sit down with your kids and at every point in an age-appropriate level, at every season of their life, when they're facing the decisions that you made that were foolish in retrospect and that cost you dearly, show your kids your scars. Say, now, buddy, I love you too much to not tell you something I did when I was 16 years old. I had the same decision to make, and here's what it did. Tell them about the shame. Tell them about the hurt. Tell them about the regret. Tell them that what you thought was a shortcut to success actually ended up being a dead end of sin. Sin always has a cost. It always exacts a price. If you've been saved and healed from those things, you have a spectacular platform to help your kids avoid your mistakes. That's why Asaph is going into it. What I'm trying to say is simply this. You need to set your heart on helping your kids trust God more than you have. To do your dead level best to get out in front of them one step ahead with all the help that you need. And I welcome your phone calls I welcome your emails. I am your fellow struggler in this fight, but I would love to come alongside you. Not to supplant you. I can't do that. Those are your kids, and it's your responsibility and your joy to teach them to love God. 
But together, before God, you can help your kids trust and love God more than you have. If your children are still alive on earth, there is hope for them. If you will teach them to put their hope in God, not in all of the idols that are calling out to them. Now, specifically to go to some questions. A lot of questions, and they basically fell in four categories. And there's too much here, and it's too personal, really, in some instances. I'll, I'll maintain confidences, but I can't possibly address everything that would need, uh, would need to be said at this moment. But the first question was from a young mother who spoke of a crippling anxiety and fear, having this little kid in her life who's I mean, I've seen the kid on social media. He is evil Knievel reincarnate. And she's just afraid. And the question was twofold. How do I give that burden to the Lord? And also, am I normal? Is it natural to be this afraid? What do you say, parents? Is it natural to be afraid? Absolutely. And you have a tremendous platform, fear, anger, frustration, all those negative emotions we experience as parents, those are wonderful platforms, or rather triggers to make you run to God and to say to Him, you love this kid somehow more than I do. I love him more than my own life, and you love him still more. And I'm so afraid that I'm going to blow it, that I'm going to hurt him, that he's actually going to think the blanket is an effective cape and actually jump off the building. All those things that little boys in particular do. If you'll take those things and cast that burden on the Lord, you can grow spiritually more than just about anything in the world. There is nothing to humble a self-assured person like having a kid. And everything I'm telling you now, I offer in the spirit of the young seminarian who graduated from a great university with a seminary degree, having no children, wrote a seminar entitled Ten Commandments for Parents. Then he had a kid, and he changed it. He rewrote it extensively and called it Ten Principles of Parenting. By the time he had two, it was entitled Ten Humble Suggestions for Fellow Strugglers in the Great Journey of Parenting. That's where we are. That's where I am. A second question is this. How do I discipline my children without breaking their spirit? It's a good question. Let's go to Scripture, shall we? Flip forward in your Bible with me, please, to Proverbs 29, verse 17. And let's speak about discipline and correction. Proverbs 29, verse 17. Understand first the purpose of discipline and confrontation. Whether it's corporal or verbal, whatever season of life you're in, whether you're dealing with a defiant two-year-old or a cantankerous 22-year-old, here's what your heart has said on Proverbs 29, verse 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest, he will give delight to your heart. The purpose of you disciplining your children is for you to be able to enjoy your children. Discipline, it's one of those cultural deceits that have been planted into our culture. The very words, discipline and correction, if nobody knows what's true and right, it just seems altogether too harsh and authoritarian for everyone to say yes, no, and you can't. Proverbs, because there is a God and He has spoken clearly to make Himself known, sets those boundaries down and passes them on to parents. Discipline your son and He will give you rest. He will give delight to your soul. Here's the fog-cutting question for you to evaluate how you're actually doing. Someone taught this question to me years ago and it's made all the difference. Here it is. Do other people enjoy being around your children? Of course you do. You're wonderful. You're killing yourself for them. That's why you get up so early and get home so late. That's why you put up with the pain of childbirth. You think they're wonderful. Is anybody that is not obligated to care for them, do they think your kids are okay? If you will discipline and train them, you'll have rest and you'll have joy. Look backward now, Proverbs 22, verse 15. One of the verses my mother built her life on. 
folly is bound up in the heart of a child. See, the default setting is that kids are wonderful, practically perfect. Sugar and spice and everything nice and all that. Listen to the God who made people and saw the effect that sin had on them describe the human condition. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. If you don't believe that, let's walk across the parking lot in a few minutes and go into the two-year-old Sunday school class. How to explain a two- or a three-year-old aside from Proverbs 22, verse 15? Where does someone who is one foot tall think they can speak to the person who gave them birth and say, no, mine? I've, I've heard this endless times out in public, usually at restaurants. A little child will look at his mother, look at his father, and say, I hate you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What is that? That is the expression of foolishness in the human heart. Here's the corrective, the rod of discipline. Oh, dear drives it far from him. To be clear, the specter, the horror, and the prevalence of child abuse make people so terribly uncomfortable that they read what Scripture says and flinch. Nothing in Scripture, nothing with the heart of love you have for your child comes anywhere near anything in the criminal code that I'm familiar with that puts you within 10 miles of breaking your child's fear, of being harsh, of being cruel, and degrading them as a human being. But if you do not choose to correct them, whether it's physical or verbal or some combination thereof, taking things out of their life to make them experience the pain and disappointment that disobedience and rebellion always brings. If you're not willing to do that, you will not enjoy them. The curse of American parenting in particular on this side of the world, in the West in general, our parenting is child-centered rather than centered on God, truth, and respect for our elders. I'll give you, for instance, my wife is a teacher, so I'm keenly familiar with this, and every teacher in the room will understand it. A generation ago, a kid brought home bad grades, as I sometimes did. The parents would look at the grades and say to the child, what is the meaning of this? Our generation, same, same thing happens. A kid brings home bad grades. The parent races over to the school, confronts the teacher, and shows him the child's bad grades and says to the teacher, what is the meaning of this? It's the child's responsibility Always, and discipline confronts them with that fact. Look further back, Proverbs 13, verse 24. Understand where discipline and correction comes in and what its purpose is. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. If you refuse to correct your child, you behave as if you hate them. And it is such a cancer on American families that mom and dad have to be popular. They have to be held in high esteem by their parents, at, by their children at all times. Listen, to be very practical, I want, I insist on being the first mean person my kids ever meet. Mean, unreasonable, Stubborn, thick-headed, just as consistent as gravity. That's how I want my kids to experience me. Because, listen, if you don't discipline your children, someone else in the culture will eventually. And you would rather discipline them yourself in the safety, the warmth, and the love of your home than have the teacher do it, have the principal do it, have their boss do it as they're chronically fired because they've never developed respect for authority and diligence and grit. You don't want the police disciplining your child. To be very plain, at all ages of life, so long as you have influence, you want to put your children consistently at the crossroads between choosing to obey and honor God or make their own choices and consistently facing the consequences that come with them. Brings me to a question regarding adult kids. And there's so much here. I have a lot of email to write this week. And this is the part where I'm just, I mean, I'm, you know, as we say in Mexico, with my heart in my hand telling you all this, trembling with fear because I'm still in the fight with you. I can't look back over 
having done everything right and seeing good outcomes with my own boys. But what about grown-up kids who aren't behaving responsibly? They're not working enough. They're not moving into adulthood. In general terms, love is always willing to let the people we love, our kids, suffer hurt, but not harm. Let me explain the difference. One of the most, to tell you a personal story, one of the most formative things that ever happened to me is my parents let me fail several things in high school. They just refused to step in. They let me struggle. They got me help. They supported. And when I was thick-headed and plunged ahead, they let me fail again and again and again and again. And they let hurt come into my life. Never harm. Love always steps in the way of harm. If you can see the decision your child is about to make will be irretrievably life-changing, will injure them, will harm them, will change their life forever. Love steps in to absorb that harm, but not hurt. And the trouble is, parents at that critical moment in facing defiance from their child don't want to go through the pain of seeing their children that upset with them. So they continually shield them from hurt. I went to Bible college with a kid, a pastor's kid, who was consistently rescued by his father. His father, who was influential, had some money, had some pull, consistently stepped in to save his little boy from everything that could disappoint him or hurt him. And today, we're the same age. His life is a living disaster. He's almost like a parable of foolishness and pain and ruined. His own life is ruined, and he has ruined at least six lives behind his because his parents were unwilling to let him feel hurt. You know the prospect that kids have sometimes of throwing fits at the grocery store? Here's the magic that my father-in-law passed on to me, and I'll give you an example from the grocery store. For a brief time, we were living with my in-laws in Texas when we were raising our missionary support, and one of my boys at that time was built morally, mentally, spiritually, until Jesus came into that little kid's life, he was built along the lines of Genghis Khan, okay? He was just absolutely brutal. And my in-laws keep a beautiful home, and we're sitting there in his flawless living room, and here comes the kid leaving a sloth of destruction in his wake with his shouting mother in hot pursuit. He was quick. And just watching the destruction as it went by us, I was embarrassed, and I said, Man, parenting, tough job, huh? So difficult. <laughs> and he said, well, I never thought of it as difficult. You didn't? Do tell? He said, well, Bruce, what I tried to do is I tried to explain to my girls, starting with the Bible, exactly what I wanted them to do. And I made sure they understood me. And every time they disobeyed me, I disciplined them as quickly as I could, here's the magical part, so we could get on and enjoy the rest of our day. And I thought, that's it. You have to put your kids continually at a crossroads at their age level of obeying and disobeying. Not arbitrary, not harsh, you just continually have to put them at that crossroads, whether they're 5 or 20, and then when they choose, you let them enjoy the blessing of obedience or you let them suffer the hurt and the consequence of disobedience. If you do that long enough, children will learn that this is no way to live and they will return to their senses because that's what reproof, that's what correction, that's what consequences do. The most valuable parenting lessons I ever saw anybody apply, they had a kid who threw a fit every time they went to the grocery store screaming for certain things the child wanted. Is this familiar to anyone? So, he started doing this. Right before they went into the grocery store, at an age-appropriate level, he said, buddy, we're going to the grocery store, and if at any point you throw a fit or scream or demand, I'm going to leave every single thing in the cart right there, I'm going to take you home. I'm going to come back and do all the shopping myself. And here's the deal. I'm not going to get anything you want until I go back to the grocery store the next time. 
Somebody will say, I don't have time to do that. No, you don't have time to waste training your children. And it was a painful, time-consuming thing, but eventually the kid learned. Whatever you're doing, put them continually in an empowering position to choose their attitude and their behavior and let them live with what follows, whether it's blessing or consequences. Finally, what about adult children that have walked away from the Lord? In all of these things, you have to lead with prayer. Before you grab your phone in the morning and start checking your email, take a moment to acknowledge the Lord. Take a moment to hear from Him. Prepare mentally and spiritually to go to that child's encounter. And if you're dealing with adult children who are simply not responsible, who have walked away from the Lord, a few things to tell you. First, listen for the hurt in their story. A lifetime of dealing with skeptics and atheists has convinced me every time someone is coming from a position of hostility to God, if you'll, get the time, if you'll take the time to know them, you will hear hurt and pain in the story. If you get all academic and give them nine solid and apologetic reasons that they're wrong, you'll tell them truth and you'll miss the person. You'll win the argument and lose your child. Don't do that. Start with love and with understanding. And in all things, you love the Lord and let them know what the prodigal son in the parable knew, that when all was lost, he could go home. The effect of your prayers and your patience may take years, and I hate to tell you that, but I've seen it many times. It may take years for you to see the fruit of their return to the Lord because they tired of living with consequences. They battered their head against foolishness. They refused to acknowledge the Lord's faithfulness for years, but finally they came home. Be authentic and humble and make, them sh make sure that they know whatever else the world does to them. You will not dishonor and disobey God yourself, but you will love them all the way through so that when they're ready to come home, they can. In other words, you've set your heart on helping your kids, whether they're two or in their 30s or 40s, trust God more than you have. There's more here than I can tell you. And I tell you this honestly as a person who is humbled both by God's grace to our family and humbled by my own failures and shortcomings as a dad. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do a few things differently for sure. But if you will love the Lord and love your children and pay the price of loving confrontation and set them at that crossroads over and over again, you'll be amazed at what God can do for your kids. Let's pray. Lord, there's more here than I can begin to address, but you have promised wisdom, Lord, in all circumstances, parents are able to go to you and ask humbly for your wisdom and guidance, and from you, Lord, they will receive generously and without reproach what you want them to know. I pray for young parents who are scared to death. I pray for older parents with adult kids who are brokenhearted, and for everyone in between those two seasons. May we, Lord, walk with you in such a way that we teach our children to love you and trust you more than we have ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.